I'm excited to be here uh, and I'm honored to be here. I'm excited because I love this topic of uh, Butte and the North Butte mining disaster in 1917. And I'm honored to be here because I think this is a really important topic. And uh, I think you were very wise to pick the year 1917 for the focus of your conference this year uh, for reasons I'll talk about as we go through the presentation tonight. But it's, it's, it's a story and a year that I sort of uh, stumbled upon uh, in part by accident. And I'll see if I can make this, uh, this projector work. So uh, when I moved back west, I, I was born in Wyoming and uh, raised in Wyoming, as, as Bruce mentioned. I went out east for a school. Uh, I was a lawyer for a couple years and uh, went to work for Senator Baucus uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, while there, I met a girl from Montana who's sitting in the back of the room right now, Wave Tracy. Uh, uh, and after we had kids, we decided that we were gonna move back west. Uh, we looked all over the place, we looked all over Wyoming, we looked all over Montana. Uh, and while I was working as a lawyer in Montana, I wrote a book, The Revenant, and decided after writing the book that I liked being a writer a lot more than I liked being a lawyer, and uh, that we would move back to Montana and uh, I would try and, and write. And so we came back here in 2003, and I set about right away to try and find a story that I was just really in love with. And I wanted it to be a story that I could drive to from Missoula so that I could do the research on the ground. And for my whole life, I had been in love with stories about the West. Uh, but frankly, they weren't stories that looked very much like this. Uh, in my mind's eye, as a kid from uh, Wyoming, uh, I grew up with uh, stories of the 19th century fur trappers, cowboys and Indians, uh, homesteaders, uh, Laura Ingalls Wild, uh, beautiful mountains and clean, pristine plains. Uh, this was not what the West, in my mind's eye, looked like. And it wasn't until I started reading more and more about Montana history that I found myself being led back over and over again uh, to Butte, Montana. And I, to myself, I said, you know, I've got to start going over to this place and, and seeing what's going on there, and so I did. And when I got there, uh, it did not look like what I was expecting, and it did not look like the postcards that we, we see uh, for sale in the tourist shops. Uh, but what I learned about Butte is that it is a place where uh, there is a profound and important story. And there's also a beauty, but it is not a superficial beauty, and that's one of the things I want to talk about today. Uh, I'm going to jump around some in this, in this uh, discussion tonight, and I hope you'll be a little bit patient with me. Uh, I'm going to spend some time on, on 1917, uh, but I'm going to go backwards and forwards some. And one of the great things about Butte, I think, is it's full of these great little interesting stories that, that, that give lessons that are significant in ways that you don't initially think about. So give me a little bit of slack, if you don't mind, and I'll jump around some in talking about this. But what the early story of Montana really is all about, after Lewis and Clark, uh, and what the early story of the American West about is about, in many ways, uh, is mining. And as you know, and, and I know that the people in this room are, are people who love history and who have studied history, so I feel like I can use a lot of shorthand in our discussion tonight. But as you know, when uh, the 49ers went to California uh, in search of, of gold, they skipped over, for the most part, the center part of the country. They got across it as quickly as they possibly could. Some of them actually took boats and went around South America to get to, to, get to California. Others uh, worked their way across the continent as rapidly as they possibly could, and they left open this vast area in the middle, and it wasn't until the California gold started to, the, the placer gold in California started to run out in the late 1850s that they began to, to venture back to those parts of the continent that they had skipped over. So we see them then going back to places like Nevada and Colorado, and even by the early uh, 1860s, uh, Montana. But the type of, of mining that they were doing, uh, initially anyway, was gold mining, uh, and specifically placer gold mining, which was a lot of people refer to as poor man's diggings. And you can see why they call it poor man's diggings. Uh, anybody could do this type of mining who had the, the grit and the determination to go out and sit with their water in a cold stream all day and pan for gold. 
And there was always the possibility that one of these guys was gonna hit it big. Most of them didn't, but enough of them did to keep the drive there to go out and, and seek gold. But what happened after uh, not too long in many of the places where Placer gold mining was taking place, including, including Butte, is that the Placer gold ran out. Uh, there's an interesting statistic that in 1867, there were 5,000 Placer gold miners along the uh, Silver Bow Creek uh, in what's now Butte, Montana. 5,000 Placer gold miners in 1867. In 1870, there were 243, and 90 of them were Chinese. And what that usually meant, when the Chinese moved in, it was usually because the European-Americans had moved out. It was very difficult for the Chinese-Americans to get stakes in the, uh, the most popular uh, mine sites, and so they oftentimes would come into places that the European miners were leaving in order to mine what was left over, sometimes actually quite successfully. But by all appearances, by the early 1870s, uh, Butte was about to be a, uh, a, a ghost town. What happened, though, was the next phase of mining in Montana, uh, silver mining. And the gold miners had known that silver was there from the, from the very beginning. They had what they called these black reefs that appeared in the geology, and they knew that that meant that there was silver there. But a, a, poor, a, a guy with a pan uh, was not going to mine for silver. Silver was industrial mining. You needed to be able to uh, drill uh, deep, deep shafts into the ground. You needed to be able to have mechanical elevators to lift the ore out of the mine. You needed to have gigantic uh, stamps like this one to crush the ore into a workable form. You needed to have places where you could process the ore uh, using chemicals to extract out the silver. This was industrial mining and it required a completely different type of mining and it required huge capital. And the discovery and the mining of silver in Butte brought that industrial mining and capital to Butte in the 1860s and 70s. Um, if you look at the Montana flag today, and my Greek, I believe it's Greek, somebody will, in this room I think will correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it says oro e plata. Is that, that's Greek, not Latin? Plata e, Latin, okay. Well, you can see my, my Greek and, Rome and, uh, and Latin are not good either one. Uh, but, you, you, but I do know that it means, uh, it means gold and silver. Uh, if Montana had become a state just a couple of years later, uh, what I think would have almost certainly been on the state flag is not gold and silver, uh, but copper. Because it is copper that made Butte what it became, and it is Butte that made Montana what it became. And uh, this is what uh, Butte looked like in the era when copper mining was really taking off. There's an amazing story about how copper was discovered in Butte. Uh, people in this room know very well uh, Marcus Daly, one of, the, one of the infamous or famous, depending on your perspective, copper kings. And Marcus Daly made his fortune in Butte as a silver miner. Uh, and he was mining in one of his mines, the Anaconda, one day. Uh, he was sitting up on the surface when a guy came up from down below, uh, rushed into the office and told Marcus Daly that his men down below the surface had come across what they called some new material, and they urged him to go below ground. And he rides down below ground on the, uh, on the lift, and he gets down there, and he walks out to the site where they're, where they're, they're drilling boreholes uh, in the side of the stope. Uh, and he watches as they set the charges. They retreat back around the corner. They, they set off the charges. It blows. And uh, Marcus Daly, who was a miner's miner, uh, walks into the dust that's still settling from the blast, and he reaches down and he picks up a piece of this new ore, this new material that they're into, and he turns to his foreman, who was named Mike, and he says, Mike, we've got it. And what he was holding in his hand at that moment was a huge chunk of copper. And what he didn't know uh, for a fact, but what he cer certainly must have suspected is that he was into an incredibly rich vein of copper, what would come to be known as the richest hill on earth, what for its time was the richest source of, of copper on the planet. And that is what made Butte. And one of the reasons it made Butte is that discovery of copper was happening at almost the exact same moment that the country was becoming electrified. 
and of course to electrify the company to put electric lights in every house in America required copper wiring and Butte, Montana had the copper that wired America and it's what turned Butte into the richest hill on earth. I'm going to skip ahead now to 1917 because I want to I want to focus to uh, as I said the the end of the end point of this discussion and then we'll go back and forth. One of the things I came across when I was researching uh, for uh, fire and brimstone is a report that was written in 1934 uh, prepared for President FDR. And as you know, uh, 1934 was was still the Great Depression, and there was fear. Uh, in the Roosevelt administration that the poverty uh, that was endemic across the country was going to lead to social unrest. And so uh, FDR asked his cabinet to study previous periods of social unrest in America and figure out what could be learned from those periods of unrest. And they, one of the places they studied was Butte, Montana in 1917 because of everything that had been going on there. And I love the conclusion of this report that was prepared for, for Roosevelt. The, the conclusion of the report is this. The story of Butte in 1917 was altogether normal for its time. Indeed, in that very normality lies the story's significance. What took place in Butte took place elsewhere as well. When we know the Butte story, we know the others. To me, that's a pretty powerful reason why we should be looking at 1917 and specifically at, at Butte in 1917. It's not a story that's just about Butte. It's not a story that's just about Montana. It's a story about things that were going on all across the country. Let me ask, am I speaking, am I causing the static in this or? Well, I'll, uh, I'll fight through the static, and you folks will just uh, uh, be patient with me. Um, but you, you can see, I think, the significance of, of this story, uh, as I said, not just for, for one city or one state, but really for the country. Uh, what is that story? Uh, as a writer, I love metaphors, and I also have always loved old photos. And this is a photo that I came across in the, uh, in the Butte Silverbow archives. And I love it at many different levels. Uh, I love it because it tells you about the grit of these, uh, of these men who went down in these mines in this era. I tend to be a bit claustrophobic myself, uh, even without setting charges of dynamite in the, uh, in the wall of a very confined space. Uh, but the fact that these guys did that for a living and did it with such apparent uh, calmness and moxie uh, tells you something about the character of, of those miners in that era. But the other reason I love this photo is because it's such a great metaphor for Butte in 1917. They're setting multiple fuses at the same time, leading to multiple powder charges. And Butte in 1917 was a place where there were multiple kegs of powder, metaphorically, sitting right there beneath the surface. The three major powder kegs in 1917 were war, ethnic tension and labor strife, and I want to talk a little bit about each, each one of those. This is a photo from uh, June 6th, 1917, two days before the, the, the fire broke out at the, in the Granite Mountain shaft. And this is a fuzzy picture, and the reason it's a fuzzy picture is because uh, they were trying to take a picture of a riot. Uh, this is a riot of over 2,000 people who were rioting in Butte uh, against the draft, uh, which had, had draft registration day, had just been imposed literally days before this fire broke out, and there was a massive protest against it. Uh, one of the interesting things about Butte in 1917 is it was really a microcosm of Europe. And Europe, of course, in 1917 was already at war. And you can imagine uh, the, the, the tension in a town like Butte uh, when Europe was at war. The, the, the no smoking signs at the mines were written in 16 different languages in 1917. That gives you a sense of the, of the diversity in Butte. Uh, a big part of the population in Butte was German. Uh, if you were a first generation German immigrant, you can imagine your horror at thinking that your new country is going to go to war with your old country. 
A big part of the population in Butte was French and English. Uh, the French and English were eager for the United States to go to war in support of their countrymen. Uh, you had Finns uh, in, in Butte who were notorious as the most radical of the, uh, do we have any Finns here tonight? Uh, yeah, well you know what I'm talking about. The, the most radical of the radicals. Uh, the Finns were the Butte socialists and they were opposed to World War I uh, and passed out handbills saying uh, rich man's war, uh, poor man's fight. They were a, a big part of the uh, force that was behind organizing the anti-draft uh, uh, riot that I showed you the picture of. Uh, if there's anything that all of these uh, ethnic groups agreed on, uh, and I, I forgot to mention the Irish, by the way, uh, who didn't want the U.S. to go to war on the side of the English because they hated the English. Uh, if there's anything that the Finns and the Irish and the English and the Germans uh, and the French all agreed on, it's that they all hated the Eastern Europeans. Uh, and they hated the Eastern Europeans because the Eastern Europeans were the most recent wave of immigrants to arrive in Butte in 1917. And in the classic pattern, the most recent wave of immigrants is resented by everybody else because they're worried that they cause wages to fall. So Butte is this uh, cauldron of, of ethnic strife uh, in 1917 that's related in part to the fact that the, that the U.S. is on the verge of going to war. I love this photo. Uh, we use this for the cover of, of, of the book. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a photo of a crew of, at the Granite Mountain Mine uh, in 1917. Some of these guys undoubtedly died in the fire. Uh, one of the things I love about it, uh, and it's sort of horrible at the same time, is look at those faces of those kids laying down in front. Uh, that could easily be a, a high school football team. Uh, those, are, those are young kids that are going to work in the mine and they, they look like kids. In the back row, you see, get a little bit more for some of the ethnic flavor of, of view, those, those thick mu mustaches that were very typical of uh, especially the Eastern European men uh, at the time. Uh, many of those men were going to work in a mine uh, not speaking a word of English, which of course was going to be something that uh, became uh, uh, a, a, a remarkable hazard to them when a fire broke out and they didn't know which way to go to, to safety. Uh, in addition to, to war and ethnic strife, uh, Butte in 1917 was a cauldron of labor strife. And to understand why uh, Butte, the Gibraltar of labor in the 19th century, had become this cauldron of, of labor strife by 1917, we really have to, to, to rewind a little bit again, as I, as I told you I was gonna do. I'm rewinding a little bit here to this photo, which was taken in 1914. And this is a picture of the Butte Miners Hall in 1914. And, and as you can see, it's in a bit of disrepair. Uh, the reason it's in disrepair is because it's been blown up. And you might be surprised to learn that the Butte Miners Hall uh, was blown up by miners. Uh, and the reason for that tells you a lot about the state of unionism in Butte uh, in 1914 and then later in 1917 and I'm going to back up a little bit more uh, to tell you how we got to this point. Uh, this is not a lecture about the war of the Copper Kings, although that's one of my favorite topics. Uh, this is a, a topic that I assume is, assume is pretty familiar uh, to, to people who like Montana history. Uh, but you will recognize two of the most uh, famous or infamous Copper Kings, uh, Marcus Daly on your left and William Clark on your right. Uh, the critical part of the War of the Copper Kings from the standpoint of, of labor history in Montana is that uh, they hated each other and many aspects of their hate for each other would have profound consequences on the future history of the state, including uh, the state of labor in the state, and I'll explain what I mean by that. But before I even get to that, I'm going to back up a little bit more uh, to 1899. Uh, which is a year that is very important in Helena, Montana, uh, because there was a Senate election in 1899. And William A. Clark, uh, who really is one of the, the all-time creeps of history, uh, uh, he, he, you may know that one of his uh, descendants died recently. The last of his descendants died in New York, and a book has been written about her. And I'm going to get this a little bit wrong. But I believe she was maybe his uh, granddaughter. Somebody can... Daughter, okay. And I'll tell you why that's really creepy. 
is because she was very old when she died recently, and yet she was this guy's daughter who was very old at the turn of the century. Uh, the reason she lived that long is because her mother uh, had uh, originally been uh, adopted by uh, William Clark and only later married. Uh, so there with, I'll let you ponder uh, on, that, uh, on that Woody Allen-esque uh, 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 family history, but it helps to explain how this uh, daughter of William A. Clark was still alive in, in our era. Uh, in addition to, to being kind of a creep on that side of his personality, uh, he also was desperate to add the title of United States Senator to his uh, very successful resume as a business person, and he was one of the richest people in the world. And he had tried to get elected to the Senate many times before, and had always been foiled by Marcus Daly, in part because Marcus Daly, uh, uh, when Marcus Daly's miners voted, they voted at Marcus Daly's mines, and Marcus Daly's foreman counted their ballots. Now, I can guarantee you that if you were a foreman for Marcus Daly, uh, you did not want to go tell Marcus Daly that you turned in a bunch of ballots indicating that William A. Clark was going to be the next U.S. Senator, and they didn't, and he lost a bunch of elections until 1899. And what happened in 1899 uh, is that uh, uh, Clark realized that the great thing about uh, Senate elections in that era is that the people who voted for Senate elections were actually the members of the state uh, Congress right here in Helena. Uh, we didn't have a popular vote for Senate uh, in that era. Uh, and so what Clark figured is that that very conveniently congregated all of the people that he needed to bribe in order to be U.S. Senator. And that is what he very explicitly set out to do. There was a spike in the number of people running for the Montana Congress that year because everybody knew that Clark was going to run for Senate. And they anticipated correctly, that there was going to be a very handsome windfall to be earned by anybody who could manage to get themselves elected to the, to the Montana uh, Congress uh, in 1899. He put $400,000 in a suitcase and came to Helena and started buying votes. And he succeeded in doing that. He was elected as Montana's new Sen 1899 senator uh, and sent to Washington. Not, though, without a lot of people noticing this. Uh, one of the people who noticed it uh, was an old buddy of Marcus Daly, uh, who you'll recognize as Samuel Clemens, uh, known more popularly as Mark Twain. Uh, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, wrote about William Clark at the time this. By his example, he is so excused and so sweetened corruption that in Montana it no longer has an offensive smell. Um, that is not a compliment. Uh, uh, the U.S. Senate, reading all of these reports about what Montanans had been up to in sending William A. Clark to the Senate, uh, decided uh, that they didn't want to seat uh, William A. Clark uh, because he was corrupt, and they began hearings uh, to throw him out of the Senate under their ethics rules. They, they had ethics rules even then. Uh, and uh, Clark figured out that he was about to be kicked out of the Senate, and he had his lawyers figure out what that meant, and it basically meant that if he was kicked out, he could never be returned to the Senate. So before they could kick him out, uh, he resigned and went back to Montana. Now, when a senator resigns, uh, he's the, his seat is filled by the governor of the state until a new election can be held. At least that's the rule, that was the rules in Montana. And uh, Clark knew that Daly, uh, the governor of Montana at the time, was Daly's friend. That was the bad news. Uh, the good news is that the lieutenant governor at the time was Clark's friend. And so this, is, this all really happened, by the way. I'm not this is not from a novel. I'm not making this up. Uh, Clark conspired with the lieutenant governor to lure the governor of Montana out of the state. Uh, while the governor of Montana was out of the state, the lieutenant governor was the acting governor, and Clark got the acting governor, the lieutenant governor, his ally, to name Clark to be the replacement for Clark, who had been kicked out of the U.S. Senate. I tell you this because if you ever feel a little bit dispirited about, about politics today, uh, you know, just know that we've survived some, some stuff before and, uh, and made it through. It's one of the things that, that gives you a little bit of a uh, positive feeling. 
Now, why did I go off on that tangent? Well, number one, because it's a pretty remarkable story. Uh, but number two, aside from the fact that it's amusing to us 100 years later, uh, the, the downside of this for the state of Montana is that Clark and Daly and their political shenanigans institutionalized corruption in the state of Montana. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a phrase I like uh, a lot by uh, former Senator Daniel Moynihan. He used to talk about defining deviancy down. Uh, these two guys defined deviancy down, and they made it normal for this type of corruption in the state of Montana. And that was bad enough when it was Montanans uh, who were the corrupt, the corrupt uh, entities. But it was about to get even worse because what was about to happen is that uh, a great shark was circling the state in the form of the Standard, Standard Oil Company. And, uh, and I'll explain again why this all comes back to 1917, so bear with me. Uh, Standard Oil Company and the Rockefeller family had made a fortune in the last part of the 19th century uh, by having a monopoly over oil. Uh, and you say that today and you think, oh, you can't have monopolies, that's a bad thing. Uh, that's illegal. Well, it is illegal today. It was not illegal at the time that the Rockefellers did it and created this oil monopoly. It was just, at the time, a very successful business strategy. And having cornered the market on oil, the Rockefellers scanned the horizon to figure out where they could run this monopoly play again. And what they came up with was copper. And they decided that they were going to monopolize the copper market in the same way that they had monopolized the oil market. And their starting point for doing that was Montana. And so Standard Oil came to Montana at the turn of the century in a big way, and they bought out the Copper Kings. There was one guy who fought back against him, and he's a fascinating character who's also worthy of his own uh, novel or, or, uh, or, uh, or nonfiction treatment at some point, and his name is Augustus Heinze. He's this guy on the left. And Heinze fought back against the Standard Oil Company, and he lost. Uh, and it's a glorious fight, and I won't go into the details of it. But I will tell you that he very correctly prophesized the result of his losing the second war of the Copper Kings to Standard Oil. This is what's, what Heinze uh, said in a very prescient way. If they crush me today, they will crush you tomorrow. They will cut your wages and raise the tariff in the company stores on every bite you eat and every rag you wear. They will force you to dwell in standard oil houses while you live, and they will bury you in standard oil coffins when you die. And that is exactly what began to happen in, in Montana at the turn of the century uh, when the standard oil company uh, became the employer, literally, of 90% of the people in the state of Montana. That's a phenomenal thing to think about. Uh, the impact that had for the miners uh, was immediate and it was uh, negative. Uh, despite the fact that Daly and Clark were creeps in, in many ways, uh, one thing that they were pretty good about is they had pretty good relations with the labor unions, in part because there was some competition between the two of them uh, for workers and they needed good relations with the miners. And that is part of the reason why Butte became the Gibraltar of labor in the last part of the 19th century. Uh, but what Standard Oil did is they came in and they crushed the unions. They, they shut them down hard and fast. Uh, and many of the, uh, of the, what today seem like very uh, reasonable demands of miners at the time uh, went away. Uh, shorter working weeks, uh, greater safety, uh, better wages. Uh, those were the basic demands of, of miners' unions in the late uh, last 25 years of the 19th century. And those began to go away uh, under the Standard Oil regime that began in 1900. What also happened is Standard Oil infiltrated the union uh, and basically bought off uh, the heads of the union, uh, who the rank and file union members claimed were wearing the copper collar. And so there was this incredibly uh, deep-seated resentment among rank-and-file miners of the union leadership uh, under that standard, in that Standard Oil era. And that is exactly what led to the bombing of union headquarters in 1914 
uh, by Butte miners. But the thing to remember is that from 1914 on, basically until uh, the FDR administration, uh, there were no effective unions in Butte, leading to that labor tension that I mentioned. So here we are, back to 1917. That was a, a long-winded way of explaining why there was so much volatility in Butte on June 8th, 1917. Those powder kegs are sitting there, war, ethnic strife, uh, labor tension, lacking only a spark to set the whole town on fire. And of course, exactly what happened in, in, in Butte on June 8th, 1917 uh, was a very dramatic spark in the form of a disastrous fire in the Granite Mountain Mine uh, in Butte. This is a picture of the uh, Granite Mountain uh, Mine on fire that was taken uh, the first day of the fire. If you've ever been over to Butte and you've been up to the Granite Mountain Memorial, and I strongly encourage you to do this, uh, this is what you're looking down upon from that overlook. And what you can see today is just a little bit of the granite mountain head frame, which is the head frame to your left. Down in the distance, you can see just a t tiny bit of what's left of this other head frame, which is a speculator mine, a sister mine uh, to Granite Mountain. And then immediately after that is now Berkeley Pit. So the Berkeley Pit, they've dug right up to essentially the edge uh, of the speculator. But this is what it looked like before the fire broke out uh, on June 8th in 1917. This is just another close-up of the, of the Granite Mountain. One of the reasons I show this is because it's amazing the scale of the industry there in 1917. Uh, this was huge, enormous industry in the middle of Montana. Once again, something that doesn't always comport uh, with our, our mind's eye images of what, of what the history of Montana was. This is the industrial history of Montana. Um, I'm going to see if my... I'm told there's a pointer on it. Oh, ho, ho, ho. I'm, I'm impressed that I, I have a pointer and I'm impressed that I can use it. Uh, uh, this is a cross section. Uh, this is the, what they call the collar uh, or the top of the granite mountain shaft running up and down here. And this is the collar or the shaft of the speculator. And I'm going to put up a, a couple of slides to give you a sense of how big this universe was below Butte below the ground in 1917. Um, there were around 400 men working just in the North Butte uh, properties, these two mines, the Granite Mountain and the Speculator. Incredibly, this mine in 1917 is 3,600 feet deep. Uh, remember that to dig a mine that deep, you have to be able to drop a, uh, a cage down it. And to drop a cage down it, that line going into the ground has to be perfectly straight because if it starts to veer off, even by the tiniest fraction of an inch, the cage will eventually crash into the side of the shaft. So the engineering prowess here is remarkable. This is a, to give you a sense of what a single, uh, well, first of all, I'll go back to this one real quickly. It's important to know that the granite mountain shaft and the speculator shaft are connected by what's called cross cuts. And these cross cuts were usually dug uh, every 200 feet. Uh, and there are some of the very few straight lines in mining. You have a very straight line going down. You have a couple of very straight lines going across. Uh, but after that, at every one of these individual levels, you have something that looks something like this, uh, where they, they, they bore stopes, they bore tunnels, depending on where the ore goes. And so at every one of those levels I just showed you, there's, there's, a, there's a, uh, a maze that looks like this. I put this in here to show you all of the mines around the Granite Mountain uh, and the Speculator. Uh, in addition to those two mines, that whole hill is surrounded by other mines that look very similar to the Granite Mountain and the Speculator. This is what it looked like to a miner below ground. Uh, uh, I love this uh, kind of haunting image of a miner uh, over there, just out of, of uh, just barely in focus. Uh, to give you a sense of the confinement as they work through these spaces. Uh, they were still using horses, mules uh, in the mines to pull ore carts out in this era. 
uh, among the casualties of the, of the fire were, were uh, hundreds of mules uh, that were just as susceptible to the carbon monoxide, of course, as the men. This is a gratuitous shot of my son. Uh, uh, my wife and I were laughing because this is uh, 10 years ago when he was a charming seven-year-old. He's now a surly 17-year-old. Uh, and he would be very angry, I think, if he knew I was showing this photo. So please don't tell him if you happen to bump into him. Uh, so what happened on the night of June 17th? Uh, what happened is they were, they had a task of moving an electrical generator uh, right around here at the, tw I, I, I think it was around the 2,400 foot level. So 2,400 feet below ground. There was an electrical generator that was sitting right there and they wanted to move it away from the main shaft. And the reason they wanted to move it away from the main shaft is because they were worried that it would put off sparks and cause a fire. And if it caused a fire, they didn't want it to be right by that main shaft where a fire could burn very easily up the shaft. And so they moved the generator, but in order to rewire the generator, they had to lower a new cable, electrical wire, down to the shaft that was long enough for this, this additional uh, length. And so they're on, the, on the evening of June 8th, they're lowering this massive, thousands of foot long electrical cable down the shaft. And this is what the cable looked like. Uh, it was about five inches in diameter. Um, so not only was it, uh, it, it was incredibly heavy because it was sheathed in lead in order to protect it in a mining environment. Uh, this is a gratuitous picture of my daughter who was six years old at the time. Uh, but more important, uh, this is a man uh, in Butte named Al Hooper. And I don't know if there's any people from Butte here tonight, but if so, uh, some of you may have known uh, Al Hooper. Uh, unfortunately, he, he has, he's died since this. Uh, but at the time that my daughter and I met with him, uh, he was 94 years old. And he, as far as I know, uh, when I was doing my research over there, he was the only human uh, that was still alive at the time that I was doing my research who had personal memories of June 8th, 1917. And he had been a six-year-old boy, and his father was a carpenter. And he remembered his father being drafted into service to build coffins because uh, they had run out of coffins because of the, the huge number of dead from the disaster. And so my daughter and I went to, to interview him in his home. He was still living independently in his home uh, in Butte in, uh, at the age of 94. Uh, one of the stories he told us, though, in telling us about the, the fire, because he was a, a historian himself, is when he had been a boy, one of the things that he and his buddies would do is they would go out and they would collect scraps of this, this heavy cable of the type that was being lowered into the mine because they could take the copper on the inside of it and they could turn it in and get a nickel for the, for the copper. And he said that to, when, before they took it to the recycling center, they would scrape away the lead with their pen knife uh, and then they would get to the insulating material on the inside, which was oil-soaked cloth. Remember, this is the era before, before uh, plastic. And he said to get rid of, they were happy when they got down to the oil-soaked cloth, because all they had to do was put it in a barrel and throw a match in, and he said it would virtually explode, and that oil-soaked cloth would quickly burn away, and then they could reach in and pull out the copper and take it to the recycling center to, to, to collect their nickels. Uh, it gives you a sense of the volatility uh, of this material. And that's why uh, it's important to understand what happened next, which is as these men were lowering this heavy cable down this shaft on June 8th, uh, it was so heavy that it began to slip away from the cords that were holding it and keeping it from falling. And the whole cable ultimately breaks off and crashes down the sides of this shaft. It falls down about 2,600 feet, crashing the whole way down the, uh, lead, or the lead uh, sheathing, scraped away, and ends up in a giant coiled mass down here around the 2,600 foot level. So at midnight, the crew arrives, and they learn that their job, four of them, is to be lowered down, uh, find the end of this ruined cable, tie it onto the cage, 
and lift it out of the shaft so that they can get the shaft to move around. Uh, they go down there, it's dark, and this is the source of, of light in that era, uh, a carbide lantern. Uh, the important thing about this lantern, if you look at it, the flame obviously was right in the center part of this, uh, and uh, there's no pane, there's not even a pane of glass that separates this flame from the environment around it. Uh, I think you can imagine what's going to happen. Uh, they go down in this uh, shaft. There are 2,600 feet below the surface. Obviously, it's dark. They're still, by the way, 1,200 feet above the bottom of the shaft. They're looking around uh, for this, uh, the end of the cable, and one of these lanterns comes into contact with some of this oil-soaked cloth that's been, uh, that's been revealed by the cable falling down, and a fire breaks out, a horrible fire breaks out. Once that fire breaks out, uh, those mine shafts are lined with pine. Uh, it's June in Montana, it's dry. It was basically a gigantic wooden chimney and this fire just literally explodes. Uh, this is what, as I said, what it looked like the next day when it was still burning uh, ferociously. Uh, a lot of what I wrote the book about is the drama of the men who were trapped below ground when this fire happens. And what really drew me to this story in the first place uh, was just the drama of 400 guys working below ground with what in many cases is a fire burning ab above their heads, between them and the surface. And there are 400 amazing stories that night of what each of them did to try and save themselves and escape. And you can imagine that they spread out through all of, the, of that, that maze, that labyrinth of, of stopes and drifts that I showed you the pictures of earlier. Uh, two groups of men made the incredible decision that there was no way out and that their best chance of survival was not to escape, but rather to go deeper into the mine to find a place where the air was good and then to throw up some type of a jury-rigged bulkhead to keep out the poisonous gas that was coming their way. Because, of course, what happens when you burn a fire underground is it puts off carbon monoxide. And that carbon monoxide is what killed the vast majority of the men uh, who died in the North Butte disaster, ultimately about 164 of them. One of the things that was most powerful to me uh, in researching the story was the stories of the, the families. Uh, this is a picture of the families in Butte surrounding the North Butte properties, waiting for news uh, of their loved ones. Uh, and for many of them, of course, uh, the news would be terrible. Uh, one of the heroes of this story is a guy named Manus Dugan, a young Irish miner uh, whose wife was named Madge. Uh, this is another one of those things that uh, you, you, you can't make up these stories. She's nine months pregnant at the time uh, that her husband uh, is below ground. Uh, I'm going to make you read the book if you haven't read it already, so I'm not going to tell you exactly how it comes out with the Dugans, uh, but you can see the potential there for, uh, for drama. Some of the most interesting research that I did for this book, uh, obviously I spent a ton of time in the Butte Silverbow archives uh, in, in Butte, Montana, and became very good friends with uh, Ellen Crane, uh, who's one of my all-time heroes. And anybody who loves history should love Ellen Crane because she has preserved a ton of history for all of us. I would say the same thing about uh, the State Historical Society. I spent a lot of time uh, across the street at the archives uh, where there is also a Butte collection. One of the things I found uh, in, the, in the Helena archives here, literally, uh, where we'll go have a beer in a little bit, uh, was a folder uh, that I don't think anybody looked at for decades. And inside of that folder was all of the letters and telegrams that had been sent uh, to the North Butte Mining Company by out-of-town relatives asking about what was happening with their loved ones. And you can imagine in this era uh, how news spread. You know, people didn't get instant news. They would have read a newspaper article uh, that there had been a big disaster in Butte, knowing that their loved ones worked there. Uh, they, many of them uh, sent telegraphs to the mine. Uh, I'll try and read this if my eyes are good enough. Uh, the first one 
is from the mother of a guy named James D. Moore. Uh, James D. Moore, like Manus Dugan, had led a group of men uh, to, to build one of these bulkheads. Uh, James D. Moore, because of his actions, saved uh, a dozen men, but himself uh, did not survive. In the first telegram, uh, his, his mother says, is James D. Moore all right? Answer immediately my expense. Uh, and in the second uh, telegram that was sent, uh, I think two days later, she's learned that her son has died. If my son, James D. Moore, left letters for mother, sister Lee, or Ben, kindly send me copies of same by mail. Let me know cost of same and we'll send you money. If you left the above letters, wire yes at my expense. You can just sense her desperation that there might be some word, last word uh, from her son. And you can imagine and feel just the, the human impact of this. And it's that human impact that I really want to end on. Uh, because as you can imagine in doing research on a project like this, I spent a lot of time thinking about what does an event like this mean for the history of a place. Uh, I already told you about the journey that I went through in terms of how I first looked at Butte as a place off the side of the interstate, uh, the country's largest Superfund site, uh, not a place that looked like what I expected Montana to look like, not a place I wanted to spend a lot of time in, uh, to becoming a place that I fell in love with. And one of the best descriptions that I ever found of Butte was in a sermon that was delivered by a minister in Butte uh, three days after the outbreak of the fire. Uh, at a time, by the way, when many people still didn't know what the, the fate of their loved ones was. And Butte uh, was a, uh, has always been a very religious town and, and still is, uh, which is interesting in, as a juxtaposition to, to Butte's reputation as a wide open town, which it also is. Uh, uh, but on Sunday, they took a break, and, uh, uh, and they flooded into the churches, and they certainly did at this time. And there was a, a church called the People's Church and a minister called Reverend Lawrence A. Wilson. And I read his sermon, and I was just so fascinated to see him struggle to say something that was meaningful to a group of people who were in the midst of of a disaster that touched them in incredibly personal ways. Certainly friends of theirs, probably family members of theirs, some of them still missing at the time. And you can see him trying out arguments, trying to figure out what he can say to give comfort to his, to his parishioners. And first of all, he tries out this argument and he says, we are apt to be overwhelmed by the unusual. We note the exception, not the rule. Well, I suspect that was not a very persuasive argument because these people were living in the midst of this exception and it didn't matter to them that it was an exception. Uh, then he says, uh, hopefully, maybe this is, quote, the means of averting like disasters in the future. Uh, I suspect that the Butte crowd was a little bit jaded and uh, skeptical on that front because while this was the worst disaster in the history of Butte, it was not the first disaster in the history of Butte. And I, I bet that they were a little bit skeptical about uh, what the long-term impact of this was gonna be. But finally, he comes around to something that to me really resonated, uh, at least as a description of the moment and as a description of the place, namely Butte. And he says uh, this, uh, he says, but see the higher laws at work. Humanity is again vindicated. Here is a man rushing back into the gas and flames to rescue a comrade. Here are the intrepid helmet men defying death every time they enter a shaft. Here is the great-hearted city of Butte, a throb with sympathy and tenderness. Tenderness is not something that many of us think about when we think of Butte, uh, but tenderness is part of what is beneath the surface in Butte and part of the reason uh, why all of us should love that town and love the place that it plays in the center of our state's history. And I want to close uh, with just a very brief reflection on uh, how I think about these stories and their meaning and why I think what all of you are doing by coming here for a couple of days to think about history is so important. Uh, obviously, history is, well, first of all, to say the even more obvious, we live in divisive times right now. And it can be very depressing, it is certainly to me, to turn on the news uh, or the radio 
and to listen to the divisiveness in our country. And I say that without casting aspersions on either side as to who's right and who's wrong. The fact of the matter is we're incredibly divided. And one of the reasons I think we study a story like the story of Butte and the story of 1917 is to reflect on the importance of not repeating mistakes we've made in the past. 1917 was uh, one of the most divisive times in our state's history, and it ended up being disastrous. And they were not able in that era quickly enough to find the things to pull themselves together uh, to get out of that, uh, of that negative downward cycle that they were in, and the consequences were horrible and, and dramatic. And there's the potential in studying history to learn from that. There's also the potential in studying history uh, to be hopeful. And I go back to, Reverend, uh, to the Reverend's uh, sermon from Butte uh, on June 11th in 1917, where he finds a way of pointing to something good, to something about our humanity, uh, to something about the goodness uh, in people. And history is also a time for us to look back and recognize those moments and celebrate them and be hopeful as people about carrying that forward. And so the last thing I'll say is that, uh, yes, this is a, uh, a conference about history, which I guess at some sort of definitional level uh, really does mean looking back. But I think what this is a conference about and what all history conferences are really about is about looking forward and about looking towards the future. And so I appreciate your letting me share some uh, reflections tonight, and I wish you all luck. Uh, and with, when you come up with good ideas over the next uh, couple of days, I hope you'll write them down and remember them and share them as you, uh, you spread out back across uh, not only this state, but the 10 states and two countries that you're coming from, uh, because all of us can use good lessons and, uh, and good history lessons right now. So thanks very much.